Hello, listeners. Before we launch into this episode of Victorian Samplings, we want to let you know about an online exhibit that is sure to be of interest to the Victorian Samplings audience. Like this podcast, the exhibit is a legacy of the Crafting Communities Project. It's titled Victorian Things, it's curated by Andrew Corda, it's available at craftingcommunities.net, and it shares wonderful images and detailed analysis of some intriguing 19th century objects. Among them are the three objects featured in this episode. Be sure to check it out. And now, for the latest episode of Victorian Samplings, an audio exploration of visual art. Welcome to Victorian Samplings, the podcast that speaks with artists, curators, scholars, and crafters about Victorian objects and the stories they tell. I'm Vanessa Warren. In this episode, we explore some of the methods and messages of 19th century visual art. I speak with Joe Briggs from the Walters Art Museum about a photograph of artist Elizabeth Siddle, an artwork whose elaborate frame competes with Siddle's portrait for our attention. We turn to Anne Hung for her conversation with art historian Andrea Corda. Andrea introduces us to an enormous woodcut print created for classroom use that was taller than the students who studied it. And Jesse Cron brings us a conversation about art and empire with Portland Museum of Art curator Shalini Legall. Jesse and Shalini discuss James McNeil Whistler's Jubilee set and Whistler's depiction of naval ceremonies held on the Thames to mark Queen Victoria's Jubilee. Stay with us as we look at and learn from three thought-provoking works of art. I was glad to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Joe Briggs, the Jeannie Walters Delano Associate Curator of 18th and 19th Century Art at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. We spoke about a miniature portrait in the Walters collection, a photograph of the artist Elizabeth Siddle, who was also the model and the wife of another artist, Dante Gabriel Rossetti. I began by asking Joe to describe the photograph for us. We think it's a carte de visite format photograph, so on cardboard, covered with a a light sensitive layer. It shows a woman who's got her hands folded over her chest and her eyes are closed. Her head is slightly tilted back. She has curly red hair that's running down, uh, presumably behind her back. And she's wearing a striped dress with bell sleeves and uh, a shawl over that, which is a kind of pink color. You might be wondering why I'm talking about color in relation to a a photograph. That really wasn't a thing in 1860 when we think this dates from. But it's actually a photograph that's been painted over. It's actually quite hard to tell that. You'd have to look very closely to figure out that there there is this kind of grayscale image behind the paint. This is a, a wonderful photograph, but its frame and the inscription on the reverse of that frame are also noteworthy. Could you tell us a little bit about them? 
Yes, the, the frame is very interesting. And in some ways, it's a, a, not at all pre-Raphaelite in its conception, I think we can say. Um, it's more in the style of, of Fabergé or perhaps Cartier. So the photograph is actually quite small. It's about seven centimeters by five centimeters. Um, and it's almost overwhelmed by this incredibly elaborate frame, uh, which has diamonds, uh, sapphires, opal, and either jade or bonate around it. And there is quite a lengthy inscription in cursive on the reverse. And this begins, this represents Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle, who on the 25th of May 1860 became the wife of Dante Gabriel Rossetti. In May 1861, she gave birth to a child and died on February 10th, 1862, having unhappily taken an overdose of laudanum. So this is kind of the, the, the only documentation we have is this assertion on the back of the frame that this, in fact, re represents Elizabeth Siddle. And that's really interesting because that would make this photograph the only locatable photograph of Elizabeth Siddle. Joe, this object raises all kinds of questions about mediation and the idea of the muse. What interests you about it? I think there's uh, really been a kind of romanticization of Elizabeth Siddle that really begins within her um, quite short lifetime and has continued down to the present. We tend to see her as this kind of tragic heroine who is the muse of Rossetti, and that kind of puts her in a slightly passive position. And it really wasn't until the 1970s and 80s that feminist art historians kind of said, well, hang on a second. Although she was this model famously kind of frozen in the bathtub by Millet for his painting of Ophelia in Tate Britain, uh, she was an artist in her own right, and Ruskin supported her monetarily. And she exhibited alongside the other pre-Raphaelites in 1857. So there's this interesting kind of two sides of, of this woman. And I think this, this object really encapsulates that. So we have uh, one locatable photograph of Sillo, but it's been effaced or kind of made to disappear by Rossetti's artistry that he's painted over this one likeness. And so it seems to sort of reinscribe Rossetti as the person who's in control here. And the, the pose that Siddle is in appears to be rather passive, but of course we don't know if she decided to pose that way herself or if that was something that Rossetti asked of her. And I think that this kind of effacing or using of the female body, the female image, is, is part of this kind of slightly twisted love story between Rossetti and Siddle, which kind of culminates in seven years after her death, Rossetti exhuming her coffin in Highgate Cemetery to remove uh, a book of verses that he'd buried along with her. And in some ways, there's a kind of gothic horror element to that. But I think we also need to bear in mind that he's desecrating the grave of his wife because he happens to have left some poems that he wants to publish uh, in her coffin. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's tough in a way as a curator to 
insert oneself into all of this because me trying to figure out well when is this actually from does this actually show Siddle can I find the documentation I sort of wonder if I'm rather like Rossetti trying to exert control over this this image uh, so what's interesting thinking about the afterlife of the Walters uh, photograph is that it was used for inspiration by the illustrator Kingsley Nebecki, who produced many wonderful illustrations for a book called Pre-Raphaelite Girl Gang that came out in 2018. And the full page image that he created shows uh, the hair and the shoulders uh, and the brooch clearly modeled on the photograph at the Walters. Um, and it's a particularly interesting and inspiring book. I think it's aimed at younger women. Uh, and on the back cover, it reads artists, sculptors, inventors, models, wives, sisters, and muses all provide inspiration for groundbreakers and troublemakers today. I think if we're able to kind of focus on uh, the agency of Sybil, uh, then we can tell a different story and maybe chart out a new future for talking about these pre-Raphaelite women, including Siddle. I'm interested in returning to your curatorial perspective to ask you about this double-sided and ornately framed objects display. And, and I'm thinking quite pragmatically here about what a visitor to the gallery might see, what will be visible to them, what might be hidden. Could you comment on that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because when this object was lent from the waters to the National Gallery in Washington in 2013 for their show Pre-Raphaelite's Victorian Art and Design, the decision was made by the curator to mask off the jeweled frame and just have the photograph visible, presumably returning it to more or less how it would have looked uh, pre-1906. At the Waters, we've, own, we've always uh, shown this photograph with the frame. In fact, it was shown in our uh, European Treasury Gallery alongside works by Lalique and Fabergé. So in some ways, we were almost uh, privileging the frame over the image. Uh, unfortunately today, because this is a light-sensitive work, it is often not on show in our galleries which is why we were very uh, keen to get good photography of both the front and the back and have it on our website where you can zoom in and take a really good look at it. And I also should plug the fact that all of the images on the Waters website are Creative Commons. So if you wish to use this in your research or in, in any way, the image is there for you to use and download for free. Joe, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this fascinating object. Thank you for having me. Hello, listeners. My name is Anne Hung, and today I'm joined by Dr. Andrea Corda. Welcome, Andrea. Hi, I'm Andrea Corda, and I teach at the University of Alberta. I've been working on a project that looks at Victorian education and specifically how images and objects were used in Victorian classrooms. So one of the objects that I have been looking closely at is a large scale print called the plow. So yes, the object that we're discussing today, the plow, is a woodcut print. We'll put a link to an image of it on our episode page, but could you describe what the print depicts for our listeners? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the first thing to really note about it is just how large it is. It is five feet tall. So for me, that is just about my height. But I think it's sort of helpful to think about this large piece in relation to the size of your own body. Um, so five feet tall, and it was six feet wide. So when we look at it, it's got a decorative frame that goes around the central image. And then when we look within, there is a man who is climbing up a hill holding on to a plow. And you can see that the plow is connected to two horses who have just kind of gotten to the top of the hill. Uh, and in the distance, there's a bit of a hilly landscape and some clouds kind of rolling in. Oh, I'll also mention the print is signed in the bottom right corner on the rocks that sort of emerge in the foreground. You can see the artist's name, W. Strang, and that's William Strang, and the date, 1899. As you mentioned, one of the most notable things about this print is its massive size, five feet by six feet compared to tiny little children. Why do you think this size is significant? Yeah, that's a, a good question. It was commissioned by the Art for Schools Association. And this was an organization that really aimed to bring high quality prints into schools. Now, they usually would sell reproductions of existing works of art or existing prints that were out there. And they only rarely commissioned their own original prints. In fact, they'd only done that previously uh, on two occasions for rather small prints. And so with this one, they were really setting their sights a little bit higher. They were being quite ambitious, thinking about like this enormous print that could fill classroom walls. And so... I think the, the size of this print really tells us something about the ambitions of that organization. They're aiming big with this, right? But it also tells us a little bit about the ambitions of, of the artist who was a printmaker and was very interested in sort of promoting woodcuts and kind of showing what could be accomplished through uh, woodcut printing. So as you said, your current research is focused on art in classrooms and the aptly named Art for Schools Association, which commissioned this print, plays a significant role in bringing art into those classrooms. Could you tell us a bit more about the Art for Schools Association? Yeah, sure. The Art for Schools Association, it was formed in 1885, and it really had a sort of a variety of, of members within its general membership, but also on its executive. So we have some of uh, the leaders in education of the time, but we also have leading, leading artists of the time. So we have kind of these uh, different interests coming together with, within one association, which is one of the things that I was really interested in, because of course, I'm interested in exactly that, in those kind of overlapping between art and education. So when we look at the membership and when we look at the mandate of the Art for Schools Association, um, we can see that it really fits into what Diana Maltz has called uh, missionary aestheticism, that it's a sort of attempt to improve the lives of people by cultivating appreciations for beauty, but also just by kind of injecting beauty into people's environments. And so the Art for Schools Association, when they were first established in 1885, they circulated kind of a mandate and they talked about how their hope was to inspire in children a love for the beautiful. And they thought, of course, that it was particularly appropriate to do this with children at an age when they're sort of still susceptible and um, can be influenced by their environments, or at least that was, that was the thinking behind it. It's interesting that they commissioned the plow when it doesn't seem to have any clear instructive elements that are typical in classroom art. 
What do you think we could learn from this ambiguity in the print? Yeah, um, that's another thing that really intrigues me about this print and that whenever I show it to people seems to kind of really puzzle people and prompt a lot of questions. And so I do like to point out that, of course, the, the print and its subject matter of the plow, it very much does connect to the English curriculum of the time that students were kind of learning about, you know, things in their environment. In 1895, the education department kind of came out of a list of different kinds of things that could be introduced to students in classrooms as part of an object lesson where they would be learning from firsthand observation and the plow and horses and, uh, you know, farmland, all this kind of stuff, all the things that we see represented in the print were on that list. So it does fit um, into the curriculum. And yet, it also doesn't quite fit. Like the title is the plow, but if you're trying to teach someone about the plow, you'll notice you can't really see the plow that clearly. And it doesn't really show what's being done with that plow. And so um, that sort of tends to, to get people thinking, well, really, this was just about classroom decoration. And, you know, especially when we think about the sort of aesthetic uh, mission of this organization, probably much more about sort of beautifying the spaces of of the children. So I'm sort of interested in this tension, though, between instruction on the one hand and sort of decoration and sort of and and beauty on the other hand, um, because, of course, maybe it doesn't have to be just one or the other. You mentioned ambiguity earlier, and this is one of the things that I've tried to kind of call attention to with this print that sometimes, and I think this is something that I've sort of learned from from my own teaching. So I'm kind of bringing my own sort of contemporary perspective to this print and thinking about how the ambiguous course materials can sometimes prompt a lot of reflective thinking and kind of pushes students out of their comfort zone a little bit and can actually be really productive in the classroom. And so this might be a very kind of optimistic way of looking at this print, but I, I like to think that maybe on one occasion, the ambiguities may have led to kind of an, an interesting moment of teaching and learning. But of course, we don't really know. And I should also note that what we do know is that this print didn't make it into a lot of classrooms. It did not sell very well. And so this was made in 1899. It was in the sort of catalog of the Art for Schools Association in 1900, uh, but that association did not really last beyond 1900. I couldn't find any kind of reference to them or any materials from them after that date. And we know that they actually lost a lot of money on this print. It was expensive. I mean, it's very large. And so it didn't really sell well. And we might expect on the one hand that, yeah, it didn't sell well, because as we've been pointing out, like, it's you know, not that helpful in terms of instruction. And so maybe it wasn't obvious to teachers like why they would use this. And then at the same time, it's just so much more expensive than other instructional materials that they could have used. Well, listeners, the image is on our episode page. So if you want to take a look at it, we'd be happy to hear your interpretations. And thank you so much, Andrea, for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I'm Jesse Cron. I'm speaking with Shalini Legal to discuss the Jubilee set, a remarkable little production by a prominent 19th century artist. Thanks for joining me today, Shalini. 
Could you introduce yourself as well as the Jubilee set? Thank you, Jesse, for inviting me to, to join this conversation. My name is Shalini Legal. I'm the chief curator at the Portland Museum of Art in Maine, um, and I'm delighted to speak with you today. So I became quite interested in the work of James McNeil Whistler, and in particular, a set of prints that Whistler made called the Jubilee Set. So the Jubilee Set is a particularly interesting set of prints from Whistler's work. Whistler made the Jubilee set in 1887 after attending the Jubilee ceremonies that were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the coronation of Queen Victoria. He only received this invitation because he was president of the Society of British Artists. And the, the historical factoid that got me really interested in this subject was that in the correspondence around this invitation, he decided to request permission from the Crown to retitle the Society of British Artists and have it become the Imperial Society of British Artists. So for him, this particular moment in British history and particularly in Victoria's reign was really a moment in which he could leverage the identity of this artistic group in Britain and his leadership of this group and have it kind of rise with the British Empire. So the Jubilee set is a series of representations of the events, of the celebrations around the kind of Jubilee events that most prominently included the Naval Review at Spithead. And so there had been a long tradition of Naval Reviews um, at Spithead. And Whistler, in the Jubilee set, he makes these small kind of very fleeting impressions and prints that we're so familiar with when you see Whistler's representations of London or the Thames River. But he's doing this in the context of really what is a very prominently imperial celebration. So the connection to imperialism becomes quite clear because Victoria had only recently received the title of Empress of India, and there were a number of Indian guests that were present at this Jubilee ceremony. So Whistler is observing what's, uh, what's happening. He's kind of marking it down. He's etching in his grand tradition. And ultimately he produces this set of prints. And so these prints are related to the other sets that Whistler made earlier in the century. We might be familiar with the French set um, or the Thames set. Uh, so at this point, he's used to working in this kind of album type format is how we might think of it today. But this one has a particularly imperial resonance, which is quite unusual in the way we think about Whistler. I think we tend to think about Victoria and the Victorian period in that way, but we might not always immediately be able to ascertain the imperial resonances in these kind of prints that Whistler has left us. So my study of those prints is really looking at kind of the series of celebrations and trying to understand how can we connect his interest in representing and marking the Jubilee and pulling that out further to looking at what are the traces of imperial life and imperial activity in these prints and how do we think about the act of printmaking in this context. So a lot of different ideas, but quite new for the way that people, I think, conventionally think of Whistler. Whistler's representations of the Thames in the Jubilee set recall his representations of the Thames from about 20 years prior when he'd first come to London and was really looking at the dock life in London's East End, really recording that with a great degree of kind of naturalistic detail and effort. By the time we get to 1887 and we're in the Jubilee year, the Jubilee set 
makes some references to the docks, and I think most importantly to Tilbury, which is a recently opened dock in 1887, and was the point of departure for a lot of the vessels in um, that were going to observe the, the Naval Review. But it's really about kind of how you connect the Thames out into the sea. So it's really kind of the Thames as a conduit is really the focus, I think, more of the Jubilee set than a kind of closer, more detailed study of life along kind of the Thames in, in central London. By the, this point in his career, he had done some of that already. And so this allows him to kind of expand that out. Even from the perspective of representation, they're quite different. So he's not looking in that kind of detailed, naturalistic way any longer. What he's giving us is representations that are more similar to kind of the, the, the more abstract types of work that we might be familiar with from later on in Whistler's career. So they're really kind of just very loose suggestions of the waterline, of the sky, of clouds, of, of the vessels. There's a lot of detail of all the different kinds of, of ships uh, that are part of this, uh, this naval review. You mentioned that Whistler's leveraging imperial identity for the British Society of Artists. What do you make of this? What I find so interesting about that little, again, that little historical factoid is that it, it's a great reminder to us of how quotidian imperial ideas were really at this point, late 19th century in London, that it was really kind of just filtering in, in all kinds of ways. And so even for an artist who does not explicitly, you know, address kind of Orientalist subject matter in a way that we might more directly be able to connect in themes of empire, you know, for an artist who spends uh, the early part of his career looking at the docks on the Thames, you know, what are the goods coming in and out of, of those docks? Where are they coming from? He's he's well aware of that. So the presence of the empire in the kind of lived experience of Whistler every day in London is just is so is so vivid. It's it's so real. And this kind of small little anecdote, I think, just kind of illustrates that. But it's also a little bit, I think, points to the kind of tendency in art historical scholarship and maybe in kind of Whistler studies to really see him as this singular individual, which he absolutely was. So he was a unique individual, but I think he wasn't impervious to kind of the imperialist um, ideas that were that were really salient at, at the time. And so we should not be surprised that, that he would make this request and that he would see it as an opportunity to kind of build his reputation and his, his legacy into kind of a cornerstone of British power at this time. You mentioned earlier the role of the Thames as a conduit for empire and trade. I'm interested in your thoughts about Whistler's role as a creator, a contributor, and maybe even a conduit for narratives about the British Empire. What does Whistler's work do in the wider context of British imperialism? And likewise, how does imperialism influence his authorship? Such a great question. You know, I think when we go back to kind of uncover ideas of artistic intention, right, it always gets so tricky. What what do the artists intend and then what actually happened um, with their works, right? So the Jubilee set, Whistler created a, a version of the Jubilee set that he offered as a gift to Queen Victoria, right? So for him, this was really quite special and quite unique and really a strong indication of 
him having arrived at a certain place in in British society. And unlike some of the other sets, he really reserved the Jubilee set as gifts, other other uh, versions that he made of it, right? So those sets were distributed to friends, special guests, as gifts. He really didn't see that as a commercial enterprise in the same way that he saw some of his other albums. So, you know, when we think about how does the Jubilee set help us think differently about Whistler as an imperial actor, it is striking to me how differently he approached both the production of those prints, um, printing off of those plates, the gift giving kind of embodiment, almost as a kind of act of diplomacy, and how distant it seems to be from some of the more commercial exchange, though there's still, of course, an exchange that's happening. One of the most interesting things about Whistler, really the pivotal role he played in the 19th century for spreading and sharing ideas. I mean, he was he was just a major conduit of all kinds of ideas in Europe. You know, we know that Whistler was heavily involved with explosion of interest in Japanese prints that emerged both in Britain and in France, and he brought those ideas back and forth. He had artistic colleagues in, in France that remained lifelong friends and collaborators. His importance as a bridge of all kinds of artistic ideas really can't be uh, overemphasized, I think. And I think art historical academic scholarship in general has done a really nice job of, of addressing that. But filtering in, how do you think about the imperial ideas and him, you know, in some ways extending those out is, is the added area of thought that I'm hoping this body of work will help people think through. The one other thing I'll add to that is is the fact that these are prints and not singular and unique objects like paintings, for example, or even kind of token keepsakes. I am very interested in the way that more widely kind of mass-produced objects, which Whistler's prints were not mass-produced, but some of the other kind of jubilee souvenir objects, shall I say, were more widely mass-produced. You know, how those objects circulated as as vehicles for, for certain ideas, for specific specific ideas that connected aesthetic form with imperial power. I think those objects did function in that way. And I think prints, because of their reproducibility, because of the ease in which they can move throughout the continent and throughout the world, they can function in the same way. How can we think about the Jubilee set on display in museum contexts for the 21st century? You mentioned the prints are not singular objects that would be occupying a space by themselves unless they've been intentionally separated. How does their meaning change when they're situated near objects with similar or contradictory resonances. As you mentioned, you know, Whistler's intention would have been for them to have stayed together as as a set. But of course, as time has passed and as the marketplace has come in, a lot of those sets were sold off individually um, because it was more lucrative to, to do that. So there are some collections that have entire Jubilee sets, but what you'll find more frequently in collections around the world are actually just individual prints. So I've been really interested in thinking about how the narrative of the set is disrupted by the kind of filtering of these prints into all of the other different kinds of collections in which you can't see the full narrative of the set because the full narrative of the set, it really speaks to Britain as an economic powerhouse at this time, in addition to the kind of military power that you see in some of these scenes of, of ships that he's, uh, that he's provided. So for example, the Tilbury docks, right? The Tilbury docks were incredible. They were a feat of engineering. And the fact that they'd opened the year prior, that they they could accommodate enormous vessels, that they provided direct access to the railway, which meant that goods did not have to be offloaded in central London and then 
carted off to a railway that you could get direct railway access from a dock was extraordinary. And it was really one of the innovations of the Victorian era. So the fact that Whistler is marking this and celebrating this in those prints is as important as his documentation of these naval ceremonies. In a museum context, you tend to see, you know, some of these prints that are, again, mixed in with larger print collections. And if you're lucky, maybe you might see a full a Jubilee set. Your question makes me think more broadly about what changes with prints in a museum versus kind of the more intimate connection one would have with them as domestic objects, right? Which is really how Whistler intended these to be hung in in, in homes and in, in collectors' homes. And it changes quite significantly when those prints are being displayed in collections that maybe are not connected to specific patrons or collectors, particularly when you consider that a lot of Whistler's early supporters in Britain were merchants who made their money through naval trade, right? So it, it's it's quite connected. Their interests in these kinds of subjects is really part of kind of the, the economic powerhouse that is driving uh, the British economy in this period. I think we lose a little bit of that in the museum context, but what we do gain is really a, just a much broader understanding of Whistler's technical mastery as a printmaker, as an etcher, his ability to work so quickly and with so many different types of techniques in a single plate. So thinking about dry point, his ability to use dry point to quickly convey the kind of essential details of a scene is extraordinary. And it still is to this day. And I think being in a museum and looking at Whistler prints alongside some of the great printmakers of the history of European art, Rembrandt, whoever else it might be, you see that. We have a greater technical appreciation in a museum context than I think we would otherwise. Thanks very much for your time today, Shalini. Well, thank you. I really appreciated this and enjoyed the conversation. Um, And I hope that we have others out there who will take the time to learn more about Whistler and think about these riverine and kind of naval connections. Thank you to guests Shalini Legall, Andre Corda, and Joe Briggs for their contributions to this episode. To learn more about the topics explored in this episode, please visit the Crafting Communities website, craftingcommunities.net. You'll find links to suggested readings and resources, including links to the artworks our guests discussed. And be sure to visit Victorian Things, a virtual exhibit that you can link to from the Crafting Communities site. It features all three of the objects discussed in this episode. Thank you to student team members Anne Hung and Jesse Cron for their work creating segments for this episode. And thank you to Natalie Lovetri for her transcription of the episode and to Madison George Burlett for her digital media work. Anne and Madison contributed to this podcast from Victoria, British Columbia, unceded territory of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, traditional land of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples. Jesse, Natalie, and I worked on this episode in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project. 
Crafting Communities is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andrew Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. We genuinely welcome your feedback. Email us at crafting at uvic.ca and follow us on Twitter at craftyvictorian. We look forward to sharing a new episode with you soon. <laughs>